0: Do you want to know more about how you can eat for better health and longevity, and how your diet and lifestyle can play a part in chronic disease? Then you're in the right place. I'm Claire Day. And I'm Daisy Lund, and we are
1: both plant-based doctors with a passion for improving nutritional education. In this podcast, we will bring you all the latest medical evidence on how a plant-based diet can improve your health whilst being kinder to the planet. And fairer to the animals
0: that we share it with. Twice a month we bring you interviews from experts in the field with a focus on an important topic related to plant-based health, all while sharing recipes and food ideas. So welcome to In a Nutshell, the Plant-Based Health Professionals podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Hello Daisy, how are you? I'm really well thanks Claire yeah I'm glad it's Friday actually it's
1: been a busy week so um, it's very nice to come to the end of the week and I'm planning a, a relaxing weekend and not very much so I'm looking forward to that how are you how's your week been?
0: Good. I wanted to remember to tell you that I made your tempeh recipe this week, the one with the lime and coconut rice and um the sticky ginger sauce. It was re- went really well. So thank you for that.
1: Nice. It's a good one, isn't it, that tempeh recipe.
0: Yeah, we really loved it. I had I had a friend over and um there was a moment where I was chatting away and I thought I'd burnt the bottom of the pan and I had to sort of like quickly serve it up, but it was really, really good and I think it might be worth putting in the show notes because it's so good
1: definitely will do that because it it cooks really quickly which is probably why you um you might have thought you've burnt it because it's it's ready in minutes isn't it it's, it's yeah yeah
0: definitely it was it was the rice that took the longest but even that you know I actually had in my amazing where I overbuy ingredients I actually found some whole grain basmati rice that the recipe called mm. for so um yeah, I think you did make it for me once, didn't you? And was that was that whole grain rice or did we have no, some white rice? I've
1: Come across whole grain basmati rice. What was that like? I I've used white rice before. Yeah,
0: really nice. But I I love brown rice, so I'm not I'm not someone who who sort of complains about having brown rice at all. So yeah, I thought it worked really well with that.
1: Was the whole grain basmati sort of somewhere in between white and brown then?
0: Yeah, I think so. So it's definitely got sort of a bit of husk on it, and then obviously it's. I think anything would taste nice with that that sort of sweetened coconut and lime stuff that you put in there. I'll yeah. definitely
1: seek that out though because I am trying to incorporate more whole grains and and sort of stick away from the more refined grains. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try and source that whole grain basmati. Do I'm you know not. what
0: really easy to find? I bought mine. I looked at the packet. In m I mean, I don't know how long it's been in the cupboard for, but um, yeah, Great. and is, is your supplier for that one. <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it, that we're releasing an episode on menopause this week after there's been this new guidance, did you see it, on menopause and the Equality Act, mm, which I is classing um, yeah, menopause symptoms as a potential disability. And we've got those two-thirds of women between 40 and 60 in a survey reporting that they'd experienced menopause symptoms and had felt that these had mostly a negative impact on them at work. So, looking at what this means in practical terms, it means reasonable adjustments that could be rest areas or flexible hours, or even if somebody's wearing a particularly sort of heavy uniform, it might be just relaxing uniform policies. And I thought about this in particular this week when I went into a colleague's room and I was with a male colleague and I I went in there and I sort of said, oh, it's really cold in here. And she just fixed me with a look. We're about the same age, me and this colleague. And she fixed me with a look and she said, I like it like that. Yeah. So to say, you know, you know, you know where I am with this. I think it is good that it's being talked about in
1: the workplace. You know, I think um, it does obviously have an impact. But it sounds like you're not having any hot flashes, Claire, with all the soya you're probably eating then. Um, I put it down to that. Yeah, no, I'm feeling
0: absolutely fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what about your plans for the
0: weekend? Well, so yeah, the weekend, I'm also planning on not doing too much. But it is nice not to do too much, isn't it? Because we can mull over ideas for future episodes. And as I've said, with today's episode being on women's health, it does bring me on to the pressing need to do an episode on men's health so I was going to ask did you get a chance to read the article that I sent over that came out about I think about 10 days ago on plant-based diet and prostate cancer survivors could this be a job for your quiet weekend?
1: Yeah definitely I'm going to read it this weekend Claire because I went on a, a prostate a webinar actually that NWL Northwest London did recently and I think raising awareness of Prostate cancer is so important, particularly in certain groups. So, I think you're right, we do need to plan a men's health episode. That would be really interesting.
0: Mm. So, this one was specifically about prostate cancer, and it's an American study, and they had a huge cohort of health professionals, of which they selected uh, about three and a half thousand for this study. And this was sort of following the eating patterns of health professionals in the 30 year period from 1986 to 2016. So they identified men diagnosed with prostate cancer, none of them had metastatic cancer. And they were given these food frequency questionnaires, which they completed every four years. And it was about how frequently they ate plants or plant based foods and in what proportion. And then every two years, they did a questionnaire talking about the frequency of incontinence, things like erectile dysfunction, any bowel problems, energy levels, mood, and so on. You know, the study concluded eating plant-based foods would reduce risks in terms of recurrence and improve the survivorship in men with prostate cancer. So, Looking at the results a bit more, what they did was they split how much people were eating plants into quintiles, depending on how much they were having. And they found that those who consumed the most plant-based foods scored eight to 11% better in measures of sexual function than those consuming the least. They also scored 14% better, those eating the most plants compared to those eating the least plants in terms of urinary health, So those are incontinence symptoms, better hormonal health, better levels of energy and reduced symptoms of hot flashes. And those hot flash symptoms, of course, men do experience those as well when they're going through treatment for prostate cancer, which often involves removing the prostate completely.
1: Do you know what? I think that it's really interesting that the study showed not just improvements in recurrence and, and survival, but also improvements in symptoms, which is so important.
0: Yeah. So, you know, What we've said about men having hot flashes, it's not just something women experience. Men who are unfortunate enough to be diagnosed with prostate cancer and need treatment for that, they're going to um, have changes in their hormones, which mean that they get hot flashes too, which takes us on to this week's guest.
1: Yeah. So this week, we welcome Dr. Nitu Bajekal to the podcast. Nitu is a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist, and her special interests include lifestyle medicine, menopause, PCOS, and endometriosis. And she came on to tell us all about her new book, Finding Me in Menopause, which is actually out on the 25th of April. And I found it really interesting talking to Nitu, not just about the menopause, but also about her journey to being plant-based and how she came to that through her daughter becoming vegan first uh, for ethical reasons. And I, I love that because I thought it was just really open-minded when a parent can take on board what their children are doing and, you know, make their own changes based on what they learn from their children.
0: Yeah. And and that's how my mum has come to veganism as well. I know you're still working on your mum, aren't you, Gail? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So we had a really interesting conversation about the menopause and looking at all the lifestyle changes that can help in conjunction with HRT or just for people who don't want to start HRT or can't start HRT. It's important to talk about the lifestyle things that can help. Yeah, I think so. Because I think menopause
1: is, is talked about a lot recently, isn't it? But usually in the context of HRT, actually, I don't think there's much chat about lifestyle and how that can help. Um, and I think it's interesting, the sort of the things that need to mentioned in terms of lifestyle and what an impact that can have on symptoms. And again, soya came up. The, uh, the, the not so humble bean. Yeah. So soya, I mean, there's studies showing that soya can reduce both hot flushes and menopausal symptoms thanks to the phytoestrogens. And I uh, stumbled across an independent health food shop this week, actually, that sold uh, soya chunks, which I bought. And I'm excited to try because I have not
0: cooked with soya chunks before. Do you you cook with soya chunks? I do. I sort of have mixed experience with them because if you put them into a dish too early and they just sort of stay there they can you think that they're going to be really delicious because they'll absorb the stock of whatever you're cooking but they can go a bit mushy and a bit like something you want to avoid in a stew and to be honest i used to eat them a lot more and now i've got so into all the different types of beans i sort of prefer a bean in its straight form okay that's interesting I'll cook with it
1: and let you know so tip is not
0: to put it in for too long then not to treat it like meat yeah I don't think I don't think it needs to be in there for ages um but again it's a great transition food and if if somebody's missing the texture or the taste of meat I think it works really well in in stews and things
1: okay I might give it a try but listeners if you've got any tips for me on how to make a nice recipe with soya chunks do send them in. So
0: shall we go to the interview, Claire? Yeah. But before we do, please, can we remind you to send us any questions or queries to in a nutshell, podcast, UK at gmail.com. And if you have time to rate, review and share the podcast, we'd really appreciate it.
1: So this week, we have Dr. Nitu Bajakal on the podcast. Dr. Bajakal is a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist in London, with nearly 40 years of clinical experience in women's health. She is a fellow of the Royal College and writes extensively on women's health, because she is passionate about educating women with reliable medical and lifestyle information. Nitu is the co-author of Living PCOS Free, which she wrote with her daughter, nutritionist Rahini Bajekal, and her second book is due later this year, which will be focused on the menopause.
0: So welcome Neetu, it's great to have you on the podcast.
2: Thank you. It's always funny to hear yourself being introduced and you think, okay, that sounds really nice. Is that me? <laughs> That's
0: cool. Well, we actually had more to say and we hope that more will come up about you as obviously as we're talking to you. Yeah. Um, first of all, we just want you to tell us more about your journey to becoming plant-based.
2: Okay. So I have always been brought up as a plant-based or plant predominant. I grew up in India uh, to parents from Southeast Indian uh, extraction, but we lived in Bengal, which is a very heavy fish and meat eating uh, state. Um, We were vegetarian because of uh, the religious background, although my parents were not religious at all. And so I grew up eating a plant-predominant diet. We did have some oil and some milk, but because... My mother was a teacher. My father was an engineer. There wasn't a lot of money to go around. And so oil and milk and things were premium products. So we had very little of that. So really in today's term, it was mostly a whole food plant-based diet. And I was very sporty and I was very cross with my mother because I would want to have toast with butter and cereal in milk like my friends did. Instead, I was getting idlis and sambar and rotis and sabji. And my mother would have none of it uh, because she would say, look at you, you're the tallest, you have the fastest uh, timings. Um, I was quite at at a good level with uh, athletics. So from a very young age, having had polio as a baby and just before the vaccine came out. So they were very proud of my uh, sporting achievements. So she wasn't going to change my diet. And So as all teenagers do, I rebelled and I went to my uh, Bengali friends' houses and ate a little bit of goat because it was delicious and I needed to do something different. My mother was a bit heartbroken because she wasn't religious. She was actually an uh, ethical objector. And she said, don't you hear uh, the little, because in India, often the butcher shop, the goats would be tied next to your house. So you'd hear them crying all night. And I said, well, they're already dead. (laughs) So I must have eaten goat, I don't know, three, four times in my life. Then I went to medical school, where again, our hostels were predominantly plant-based and we didn't really get served chicken and meat or or, uh, eggs even. I met Rajiv, my boyfriend, I was 18. So once a month we would splurge out with friends and have some chicken, which was all cut up into pieces. So you never thought of them as meat. And so it didn't occur to me that what I was eating was wrong. And then when I moved to the UK, I was pregnant with my second daughter. I was just turning 30. And I saw two things that happened all in one day. I saw a program on BBC which showed the sheep being shown in Australia and I saw the fear in their eyes. And the same day I thought, Everybody was so happy we were moving to the UK because we would be eating meat for breakfast, lunch and dinner. We were so lucky because meat was expensive in India. So I thought, okay, maybe I should be cooking. So I got some mince and I washed it. I didn't know that you don't wash meat. And I saw the blood running away. I thought, oh, my God, that's like the blood that I operate on my patients. And I became vegetarian again completely. And then about 10 years later, my younger daughter came home and decided she was going vegan. I tried to convince her to be vegetarian and she said, no, you know, white equals red. That dairy cow becomes slaughter meat. I'm not eating any of that. So I quickly became vegan and so did Rohini. So I have always grown up plant-based. My journey into veganism was a little bit later, but I realize for my patients and for people around me, I understand it's a big ask and I I just want my patients to do the best they can uh, for their health, which luckily the healthiest foods tend to be also kind to animals and to our planet. Um, But I don't necessarily believe that Getting everybody to go vegan is the answer because it's a difficult journey. You have to have the support of your family, the conviction, the time, the privilege. So I'm very aware of that. But yes, of course, I would love the world to go uh, vegan. But I know that health is something dear to all of us. We want to be healthy. We want to make those changes. And I I want to work with that because that's my passion.
0: Great. So You're not trying to get everybody to go vegan in your practice as a gynecologist, but can you tell us a bit more about how you incorporate what you know about plant-based diets into your work?
2: Yeah. So 22 years ago, I myself was struggling and I didn't know where to turn. My period had stopped and I knew that I was going through something called POI, premature ovarian insufficiency, which is any woman or those assigned female at birth who stop their periods under the age of 40. So under 20 is one in 10,000. One in 100 women under the age of 40 stop their periods. About 12 in 100 stop their periods between 40 and 45. The average age of stopping your periods for a year when it's known officially as menopause is between 45 and 55. So I was really struggling with my symptoms. And It took me some time to get to my diagnosis as well, because my sister, who's nine years older, was having periods. My mother had the normal time. So I didn't think, I thought I was stressed, applying for jobs, I was being bullied. And often in your head, you think it's you when it's a toxic workplace. So I didn't feel uh, comfortable to share it with my colleagues, which I should have, my male colleagues. We, I was one of four and they would have been very supportive, actually. But I wanted to establish myself before I revealed any weakness about myself, which I now know to be wrong. You can't be strong unless you share things with people. And people can't help you if, they don't know what you're going through so I didn't get the hormone replacement therapy that I should have and a year later when Naina decided to go uh, completely plant-based although I was already vegetarian and I was always physically active and I was never carrying excess weight I noticed huge improvements in my symptoms and so i still didn't because the scientists in me the skeptic in me still didn't put two and two together that my hot flushes had got better and my mood was better my energy levels were better my skin was glowing um, because you know when you are vegetarian in, in a new country in the uk you eat a lot of dairy and so getting that out actually made a big difference but it took me another 10 years to understand all the science so my patients always knew i'd gone vegan And they would always comment on how well I looked. uh, But I didn't initially want to share too much with them, except I knew that eating plants and all that was good. So my website always had information like that. As I learned more of the science, as I became uh, board certified with lifestyle medicine, I started then incorporating it even more. I always start with the lifestyle things. You know, is there areas of stress that you can improve? Is there sleep that you can improve? Is there social circle you can improve? Is there alcohol that you can reduce, those feel non-threatening. When you start talking about food, it can feel very threatening. And so I would often just empower them with knowledge, like you might want to read some of my fact sheets, because I've had my website for 25 years, uh, and I keep updating them. And I've got 50, 60 different fact sheets, all about gynecology, from hysterectomy down to painful periods, but also about lifestyle and how to improve nutrition and what supplements one should take and what supplements one shouldn't take and things like that. So I have found very good response. I see patients who they're either completely plant-based or plant-predominant. And because I think when you do it in a non-judgmental way, when you meet people where they are, they start seeing the results for themselves. They realize it's a joyous way of eating. And occasionally you'll get the vibe they don't want to know any of that and that's fine i don't have a problem but it's up to the person to go and seek the right reliable information and that's what my website does that's what my consultation does i have a voluntary organization where we try and teach school children girls you know different types of foods and how to look after themselves with painful periods and stress and things we challenge them to have one new food so it's just meeting where people are at i just think do the best we can be the kindest we can and actually people will want to follow you instead of you being harsh or judgmental to you. it makes people very uncomfortable
1: <laughs> no we agree it's not about perfectionism it's about just yeah, taking one
0: progress. step at a time yeah,
2: yeah absolutely yeah
0: so we know that you've got this book on the menopause coming out april,
2: and april 25th available for pre-order
0: Great, right. So we're we're going to talk about a bit more about that at the end. But I want to know, because we know you've got the book coming out, we really wanted to focus this episode on talking about the menopause. And what you've said is, you know, there's nothing like symptoms really to motivate people to look at their lifestyle. So just starting at the beginning, what sort of symptoms might somebody experience when they're going through the menopause? and when would you recommend that they think about seeing a healthcare professional
2: yeah so my, my one of my mantras is never too early and never too late to learn about menopause okay you may be in that fortunate 15 20% where you have no symptoms at all but the vast majority of women will struggle with some symptoms however they're not as catastrophic as the media make it out to be while i'm a great proponent of hormone replacement therapy And I know its benefits for a lot of people, many people can't take it or they just don't want to take it. So I do want people to know whether you're on HRT or not, lifestyle changes, little changes starting early can go a very long way because perimenopause, which is the time when you transition to menopause. So menopause is a definition where you do not have periods for 12 months okay and so it's a retrospective diagnosis what does that mean that means you look back after not having had a period for one year to say I am now menopausal so the time that you're approaching menopause can be as much or as little as two to eight years before your periods finally stop and that is known as perimenopause so if the average age of menopause is around 51, but the range is between 45 and 55 and your perimenopausal symptoms of hot flushes, mood changes, lowered libido, you know, there are 34 different symptoms. You're not going to have all of them, but hot flushes are the most commonly reported ones, but only one out of three women will go and seek help, even though 80% of women in the Western world will have hot flushes. And these symptoms may start when you're 36, 37, 38 when sometimes you may not even have started thinking about starting a family, you know? So that is why I have a whole chapter in my book also about fertility and understanding uh, about contraception, about STIs. All these things are important for women as we approach menopause. So if you're destined to stop your peers at 46 and your um, perimenopause is going to be the eight year type of uh, stretch, you can imagine you're hardly 37, 38. So, and you're, at the peak of your career you're trying to forge ahead and you're having all these symptoms then suddenly your periods which may have hopped and skipped or actually been still normal they start getting crowded they start getting heavier but suddenly they all go back to being normal and you know as women we are very good at telling ourselves oh that was all in my head Mm. look at me now i'm absolutely fine i must have dreamt that all Hmm. okay and then the cycle starts again and you're busy with your child's a levels or you're busy with your elderly parents or you're busy trying to forge your career ahead and you're ignoring these symptoms it is important because bone changes lipid changes all start in the perimenopause so you really want to be focusing on what is your sleep pattern like have you got a good sleep routine what is are your stress levels like stress is never going to go away in modern life okay but do you know how to identify your stress triggers do you know how to cope with them have you got a breath work strategy have you are you able to do those things Are you able to look at the amount of alcohol you're drinking and being realistic that while it might relax you, you're actually having worse sleep, worse menopausal and perimenopausal symptoms. So are you trying to reduce the amount of alcohol because you know that there are seven different cancers linked to alcohol, breast cancer particularly in in menopause and postmenopause. So and one in seven of us, will get a diagnosis of breast cancer. So, you know, it's not that I don't drink alcohol. It's just that I know every time I drink it, I am putting poison into my body and I have to make a conscious choice. I'm doing this as a treat. I'm doing this because I want to. So learning how to have non-alcoholic drinks, learning how to mix it with water, having alcohol free days. These are important things that you can bring in earlier in life and actually being able to say, no, today I'm not drinking. Today, I am not doing this. Being kind to ourselves and understanding that perimenopause can start much earlier. And also, if your periods are misbehaving for more than two or three months, it may be that you have other conditions as well. So keeping a menstrual calendar is really important from the time you start your period until the time you finish. That is really something that I can't stress enough because there are so many women's health conditions that affect us during our working career that get pushed to the back ground so it's really important to start talking about perimenopause and menopause much earlier and then if you are somebody who's just coming to it now it's never too late even if you're 80 because bone health heart health all these are really important Um, so when people say i've been through the menopause i don't have to worry about it i don't have to listen to this podcast i don't have to read anything no you do have to you do want to look after your muscles your bones your brain. And there are so many good ways of doing it through the six lifestyle pillars and HRT when needed.
0: I do want to ask you, because obviously we want people to read the book. We want people to to take the lifestyle measures first. But for anybody who's going to their GP because they think, yeah, I'm doing all that. What can they expect? Do they need investigating?
2: So that's a very, very good question. I think anybody above the age of 40, uh, you should ask to have your lipid profiles, your cholesterol levels, your iron levels, your thyroid function, your fasting blood sugar, all these things to be done. So when you go to the GP, it's it's really important that you should have your menstrual calendar. You should know when your last period was the top three things that you want out of the 10 minute uh, consultation. Now it is possible that your symptoms are already bad enough and you may be doing lifestyle measures, you may not be doing lifestyle measures, but you need help now. And so there are women who in the perimenopause, even before they stop their periods, will actually benefit from hormone therapy. And so it's important for us as doctors not to scaremonger when it comes to HRT for the vast majority of women, it is very safe. And it involves, as long as you have a uterus, you need to take both estrogen and progesterone, but estrogen is the one that will actually Help with all the symptoms. Progesterone is there to protect your uterus, so you have to take it if you've not had a hysterectomy. What's going to help you is estrogen, but taking it just on its own will thicken the lining and increase the risk of endometrial overgrowth of cells, hyperplasia, and cancer. So, progesterone is very important. There's a lot of hype about testosterone, but only a tiny proportion of women actually benefit from it in my own clinical experience. But it's certainly something to discuss, especially in the younger patient. And anybody under the age of 40 who's missing their periods for Three months need to be investigated, and in those investigations, you will do blood tests like FSH, LH, estradiol, which will tell us straight away whether somebody's got an eating disorder, or is over-exercising, or whether they are uh, having polycystic ovary syndrome, or whether they're having a premature ovarian insufficiency or premature menopause, as it's called, or early menopause. So under 40, detailed investigations as soon as you diagnose somebody with POI, because with premature menopause. uh, This time is crucial. It's important for bone health and things like that. So under 40, you'll be doing lots of tests and referring to a specialist like myself or to a specialist who's got an interest in POI. It's up to the person whether they want to take HRT or not, but it is really important medically to advise strongly to take that under 40. And you can take it until you're 55 without the clock ticking. Um, And then Between 40 and 45, we do do uh, tests again, check that you're not pregnant again, doing the hormone tests if your periods have stopped to see whether your menopausal, your thyroid function, because between 40 and 45 also, which is known as early menopause, investigations are needed. After 45, if the history is pretty clear, you don't need to do hormone tests. And a lot of clinics do urine and blood assays. So it's important to understand that you should not be wasting your money.
1: I do have two questions about testing, actually. But the the questions I have is between the age of 40 and 45, when we do do tests, if the tests are normal, but the patient is still symptomatic of the perimenopause, yes. would it be reasonable to start HRT?
2: Yes, but you don't do blood tests if they're still having periods. I'm talking about pe- people who are not having any periods. Okay, If you're Um, hopping and skipping periods you have a diagnosis there but yes you can do the fsh and estrogen levels and definitely you can use hrt even if you're having regular periods but don't expect hormone results to give you any inkling because they will be normal one day they'll be abnormal the other day we are talking about when you want to do blood tests between 40 and 45 specifically to diagnose menopause there is no blood test to diagnose perimenopause not a test and it's also important in that same breath to only use hrt that has been prescribed by people like you standardized HRT that has gone through a rigorous process of testing, which is known as body identical HRT. So it could be a gel, a spray, a patch, it could be a tablet for progesterone, it could be the Marina coil.
1: Thank you for clarifying that. I train GP registrars coming out of hospital medicine into general practice and quite often they'll see a normal FSH in a 43-year-old yeah. who is clearly having perimenopausal symptoms, and they'll be worried about starting HRT because all the blood tests are normal.
2: You can empower the patient by saying, let's do a trial. You will know in six months. You will know because they have to also expect that they may have some ir- irregular bleeding on HRT. They may, it may take time to titrate the HRT. They may have breast tenderness. They might want to give up. You know, a lot of women, half the women who start HRT give it up because they've not been counseled properly okay interesting so they're missing out a big opportunity for bone health heart health maybe even protection for brain health and symptomatic health so definitely there's a place lifestyle has a place it doesn't have to be you have to do lifestyle first and then do HRT it could go side by side it could be one or the other it could be whichever but I having seen you know I see thousands of patients so I know that those who look after their lifestyles tend to have a better response with HRT. It tends to do work better for them rather than this. And there's also this fear, um, you know, Claire and Daisy, women are so scared to, they think they're going to get old and haggard and society is going to reject them. This is the, the trope that I don't want women to think, you know. Yes, it can be very difficult for some, but for a lot of people, it isn't. So And it also might be (laughs) like a second spring, you know, so you just have to think about it. It can be hard when you're going through the symptoms. uh, I remember very clearly. So I'm not trying to minimize anybody's symptoms, but I also don't want you to be defined by a menopausal woman or defined by menopause. It really bothers me to see the current narrative that, you know, it's it's great we're talking about menopause but it seems to be very one-dimensional as if it's all doom and gloom and I, I don't want that message to go out you know my book's called Finding Me in Menopause and my book club friends who are all similar age to me said why do you call it Finding Me in Menopause we were never lost I said great you weren't lost I was So <laughs> is my book I can say what I want and I know a lot of women are lost uh, and they do need the guidance yeah
0: I mean I know you said we can start medication, we can ask them to do lifestyle stuff as well, but if as a GP, and it's always very difficult getting people to engage with you on lifestyle advice, but do you have a good, I mean, I guess what I'd call sort of an elevator pitch of what the evidence is for cutting down on alcohol for um maybe doing the plant-based diet and how or specific foods totally how that totally. can help with the menopause symptoms
2: totally so it depends you have half the women who don't have the time don't want to listen they want the hrt and that's fine and then when they come back to you for the review in three months that's when you start introducing now that you're feeling better do you think you can start maybe bringing in some tofu every day there's a nice study by dr neil bernard a randomized trial which showed that eating half a cup of mature soybeans in the presence of eating lots of fruits and vegetables having half a cup of uh, mature soybeans was enough to reduce people's hot flushes by 80 uh, percent so why don't you have a handful of tofu or a, and a cup of uh, edamame beans and a cup of soy milk and soy yogurt nobody's ever spoken to them about it so that's, that would be my advice
1: Lovely. We were going to ask you specifically about soya, so we're really glad you mentioned it. Um, yes. As you mentioned, there are studies showing that the, soya can improve menopausal symptoms quite considerably. But what I would say is there's still quite a lot of misinformation yes. about soya, and I actually have patients coming in saying they're worried about breast cancer risk, yes. whereas we know it's the opposite. Can you tell listeners a bit about the evidence to, to prove that soya is safe?
2: I don't get paid by any soy company, but... It's one of my absolute passions. I eat about four portions of soy every day. So the recommendation is you try and eat between two and four, I would say for perimenopausal and menopausal women, because you don't want to eat 10 portions. The reason is not because it's unsafe, but the reason you don't want to do that is you'll be cutting out on your vegetables, on your potatoes, your sweet potatoes, your whole grains, your fruits, and all that. So you want to have between two and four portions. What is a portion? A cup of soy milk, a, a few cubes of um, tofu that fit into your hand uh, uh, you know a handful of edamame beans tempeh you know miso things like that so soy the soy is a bean it has got as much protein as egg white so it's like the king of protein so that's one of the good reasons to have it as you get older it also has lots of micronutrients It was discovered about 5,000 years ago in China, and it's been consumed by the Southeast Asian countries for between 3,000 to 5,000 years, okay, with no problems with fertility, no problems with breast cancer. We, in fact, know that soy reduces a cardiovascular disease, especially the fermented soy foods like tofu and tempeh. Uh, We also know that reduces uh, lots of cancers. So there's a 25% increase in aggressive prostate cancer with intake of dairy, while there's a 25% reduction of um, prostate cancer in men uh, on intake of regular intake of soy. Now, ideally, you do want to Start introducing soy to your child or in early adult life, because we know the studies are more promising in that stage for breast cancer. And so we do know there's a reduction in breast cancer because soy acts as an anti-angiogenetic mechanism. It's got a very complex mechanism. It also the reason it has on the back press both in the plant-based community as well as in the general community is to do with a lot of misinformation being spread but also because it has something called isoflavones which are plant estrogens linseed or flaxseed have it but soy has a good amount of isoflavones and the beauty about the soy bean is that while when you drink say dairy milk or red meat it will work on both the alpha and the beta receptors of estrogen In soy, it works only on the beta receptors. So what it does, it beautifully blocks the beta receptors, which means that it reduces your chance of breast cancer. Okay, it will promote bone growth, it will reduce hot flushes. So it's because of this dual action It's known as a CERM activity, selective estrogen receptor modulator activity, that it is so magical uh, in its action. And that's why it's a shame when I see people having almond milk and rice milk, which is basically water, uh, you know, so great to drink it. It's not going to bring you any nourishment or nutrition. So you want yeah. to have the soy in your lifestyle, whichever gender you identify as and whatever age group you may be. While dairy two to three out of a hundred are actually uh, uh, allergic. And the vast majority of the world's population is lactose intolerant, especially as you get older. So that bloating is not down to the beans. It's usually down to the dairy products that you're eating.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. So just going back to bone health, which you mentioned a couple of times and the importance of maintaining our bone density as we go into the menopause, what can we do if we're not advocating for dairy because people still associate calcium and dairy? So what should menopausal, perimenopausal women consider? Yeah, uh, for you, their bone health.
2: Yes, uh, dairy does have some calcium in it. Does have some benefits, but not over soy because soy comes with all that. And I always recommend that you have uh, soy milk that is fortified with vitamin D and calcium. Uh, and in the UK, you should then opt for the non-organic version because organic, they're not allowed to put anything other than the soy bean itself. All the soy in the UK is certified by the sustainable round table of soy. And so you don't have to worry about the GM modified foods. Not that there's anything wrong with GM, but that's a whole different discussion. And always choose tofu that is calcium fortified. And same way you can have sesame seeds and green leafy vegetables and, and orange has uh, plenty of calcium. I would not recommend calcium supplements and I would instead suggest always taking a vitamin D supplement, a B12 supplement, especially if you're above the age of 50, uh, omega-3, especially as you're getting older, algae derived omega-3. But bone health is much more than just calcium. And that is why it's so important to start doing strength training, building your muscles so that you don't have sarcopenia, so that you don't have osteoporosis, especially if you have a family history, making sure that you're lifting weights. If you're very small, built, having a weighted vest or little weights, on your wrists and legs so that when you walk, you increase the weight along with avoiding the calcium thieves. So alcohol, lots of coffee, sugar, salt, these are animal foods which are very rich in the acidic protein. So you want to make sure that you're trying to keep these at a minimum to improve your bone health. And at the time, increasing foods like soy and green leafy vegetables to improve your bone health and doing all the exercises uh, that we talk about. It's really, really important.
1: Brilliant. And um, What about creatine? I've been hearing a little bit about creatine yeah. supplementation.
2: Uh, yes, creatine, I have a whole chapter on bone health written by Rajiv in the book, and Rohini writes a chapter all about protein as the woman goes older. So creatine is a very important addition, especially if you're training and, you know, there's a range between two to eight grams and there's lots of discussion about it, I would say. And we recommend about four grams of creatine in your diet, into your porridge and things like that. But again, look at your entire lifestyle. I don't believe that one (laughs) supplementing one thing is actually going to be that superfood, you know, just because you eat blueberries and the rest of the time you're having a liquid diet of alcohol stand you in good stead now.
1: So when you say people that are training, you mean even sort of just recreational, if you're a yeah, runner yeah. or you go to the
2: gym, doing, lifting some weights. I think if you ask Rajiv, he'll probably say all women as they are approaching menopause should be taking creatine.
1: Yeah, that's what but I've that been hearing saying, recently. It's, it's something yes. I haven't come yeah. across in the past.
2: Yeah, yeah. but I, as I said, I, I just don't think just focusing on one aspect, whether it's calcium or creatine, is going to be the solution to long-term health and optimizing your health. If you're not looking at all the lifestyle factors, I think you'll be doing yourself a big disservice.
0: I don't know whether you have a view on what are the most resistant symptoms of the menopause to treat and whether just some weight gain and loss of libido is just a normal part of aging and people might be expecting too much. What do you think about that?
2: Um... I'm not here to say what people expect or don't expect. It's not my lived experience. It's very hard uh, for me to say. I do take every patient what they say very seriously. And I try and offer them solutions, whether it be lifestyle-based or medical-based or surgical-based. And I think when you present all the options in a very non-judgmental way, people then go away and actually come to a decision which they are very comfortable with Um, that is the way i've always worked whether i was when i I retired from the nhs in april 2022 uh, but i never changed the way I, i talked to my patients or the time i gave my patients whether they were nhs patients or private patients so i think just being that person to provide the information and giving them some guidance. And so when you give them all the options, they can go and say, oh, actually, you know what, I think I will try that talking therapy. I think I will try that walk before I do this. I will think about body neutrality rather than body positivity. You have to learn to love the body that you've been given because you can't really change too much about it, you know, and there are certain facts that you have to live with, But you have to be able to accept it. If you're going to be really upset about it every time, then you do need help, whether it is in the form of um, medications or CBT or HRT or lifestyle, you do need help. So that would be my answer. I don't tend to see resistant patients. I have to say, Uh, (laughs) I tend to sort of manage to get them (laughs) onto my side when I, uh, you know, get that sensation or, I'll know straight away they don't want to engage in one aspect. They do not want to talk about HRT. And that's absolutely fine. They can go and read about it on my website and I talk to them only about lifestyle. Or I will talk to them about other complementary therapies that can help, you know, hypnosis and things like that. So it's important to read the room is what I would say. But on that
1: note, I've seen a lot of patients who don't want to try HRT for whatever reason, and that are perhaps following lifestyle measures. They often ask my advice on herbal things they can buy from health food shops and supplements. Can you give us an idea as GPs, what we ought to be advising?
2: Yeah, that's why I've dedicated a whole chapter to <laughs> to that. I would try and tell people to steer away from expensive supplements, collagen supplements, and various herbal supplements. Some of the supplements may be okay and then you have to look for the THC you know where this is a recommended you know it's been approved. Um, so red clover, for example, can help some people, but you have to remember we don't have large scale studies, and when you're putting it into a tablet, I'm very skeptical because then it is no longer natural. A lot of these supplements are peddled to people. It's a billion, billion, billion dollar industry. And I would say it breaks my heart. Patients take out 15, 20 bottles and ask them how much they're spending. They're much better off having a massage or seeing their acupuncturist or having some hypnosis. We know that these things can really make a difference for people. Yeah. And you can get HRT for free almost, (laughs) you know, you can get it with a very minimal prescription if that's what's actually right. And the truth is they don't still get away with all their symptoms. So doing lifestyle, if you don't have the symptoms anymore, that's great. And you don't want to take HRT or you can't take HRT, but just piling on herbal supplements, which may have side effects often do no uh, good at all but they also may have uh, side effects so
1: yeah we haven't really drilled down on hrt in this episode but can i just ask you because i think as as prescribers you know we obviously have to keep up to date with the evidence and you mentioned the studies that actually have well i suppose put a lot of prescribers off hrt back in the 90s and but really things have moved on now and and we realize that hrt is safe for most women but what would you say when doctors are counselling patients about the risk factors in general practice we're using transdermal estrogen so we know that we don't we don't have to worry about things like blood clot risk and that sort of thing but with the breast cancer risk there's still a bit of a question mark isn't there what What is not there its a question
2: mark so if you're using it for long term so generally my patients who go on hormone replacement the ones who love it don't come off it till they're 90 although the guidance is that you use it for the period so about five years up to 10 years and annually you have a review with your GP and uh, with your doctor and see whether it's doing the right thing for you. Do you need to change anything? Do you need to bring it down? Do you need to take it up? But the risk of breast cancer increases slightly. Two extra cases in a 100 compared to eight in a 100 when you're carrying excess weight or drinking alcohol and things like that. So really very, very small risk. And the risk doesn't start really until you are into your I I mean, we say five years, but we say actually 10 years. We don't have studies for women starting HRT for the first time at the age of 60 and above. So it's a very individualized discussion. But if you're already on it, then you may wish to continue with it, but accept that there's a smaller risk. And so I wouldn't stop people. You can come off it and you don't have to wean yourself off. You can suddenly stop. You can wean yourself off. I tend to wean my patients off. But if you find that your symptoms have all come back, then you can absolutely, knowing that there is that small risk, but that should not put anybody off. The risks from diet and lifestyle for breast cancer is actually more. Yeah.
1: And in in general practice, obviously, we're seeing a lot of women now surviving their breast cancer diagnosis and doing really well, but then obviously they then enter the menopause. Yes. And asking us for HRT prescriptions. Yes. Where do you stand on that?
2: So that is a very, very individual discussion. Most uh, breast cancer specialists are still very uncomfortable, especially if you are estrogen receptor positive. So HRT is generally a no. There are other drugs being uh, brought into the market. Uh, if it's just for hot flushes, here lifestyle comes hugely into play. Soy uh, studies have shown women on tamoxifen when they eat regularly eat soy, they halve their risk of dying from recurrent breast cancer. So, we know that lifestyle has a huge risk, uh, importance to play. Exercising reduces the risk of cancer, but also regular exercise reduces the risk of uh, cancer coming back. So every aspect, sleep, alcohol. So all these things are really important, but there are new drugs that are coming. The neurokinin-3 receptors in our brain, they work on that and help with hot flushes. So there is a lot of promise. Uh, but HRT, yes, it is possible in a very small group of women. and depends on which type of cancer. So, you know, it's a whole different podcast episode, which I'm happy to do, but it's very niche.
1: Yeah, it's really... a. Uh... The case of involving the oncologist, the specialist, the GP, Correct. it's a multidisciplinary discussion. Correct. And oh, an everybody needs to
2: be involved here. But okay. vaginal oestrogen, on the other hand, which is something that can really transform women's lives when it comes to uh, reducing the risk of cystitis and atrophic changes in the vagina reducing uh, discomfort during intercourse and when you pass urine and all the paper cuts that people talk about uh, more and more uh, of us are more than happy for women to have local vaginal oestrogen if you have had a background history of cancer
0: right so getting away from the need for any medication or supplements we want to get back to what we really love talking about on this podcast which is food and um We, inspired by a conversation me and Daisy had earlier, we want to ask you about what you recommend for breakfast. What do you have for breakfast?
2: So my breakfast tends to be fixed most days, except weekends. Tends to be a soaked porridge that my husband's made with four or five grains. So I enjoy a big bowl of porridge with a huge cup of soy milk in it, a couple of dates that have been chopped up, a cup of berries, cinnamon, um, protein powder, uh, flaxseed powder <laughs> you know lots of walnuts and cashew nuts in it so it's a big uh, breakfast that I tend to have and then usually for lunch I might grab uh, a sandwich uh, if I'm at work or a big potato with big beans and dinner it could be soba noodles with a stir fry salt and pepper tofu is tonight with I think kidney beans and a cumin rice. So, <laughs> lovely.
1: Your breakfast sounds a lot like Claire's, but I wanted to ask you do you cook the oats?
2: <laughs> uh, it's cooked, yes, in the Instapot before. We were
1: <laughs> laughing with your daughter last night about Claire eating her oats without cooking them. Where?
2: <laughs> yeah, you can soak them in hot water. So the rolled oats, you can just soak them in orange juice like the Nordic countries and have them. And I, I do love a good South Indian meal or tofu scramble. I've got a wonderful recipe on my website, which I have to say. Oh, that's a good breakfast. I found uh, anybody else's tofu scramble to be as good.
1: <laughs> oh, lovely. We'll have to look at that. No, well, but, Claire, tell us about your breakfast. We're, we're doing breakfast today, aren't we, rather
0: than dinners? Okay, you, tell do, us.
1: you don't cook your oats.
0: I don't think, I mean, I thought I was following the rules, um, that I just put everything on the morning. I just put exactly what you have need to actually, um, handful of oats, chopped date, uh, maybe a, a spoonful of cacao or some yeah. cacao nibs. And, and then I, I just chuck my frozen fruit in there. And if I'm having to eat it more quickly and it hasn't got time to defrost, then I'll put a bit of boiling water on there, but then basically the cup of soy milk as well. And um, yeah, and I, do you know what? What you get used to is once it becomes a habit, it's what yeah. you love. And it's kind of weird having to have breakfast out because I have to say, that in its form is not really served anywhere that i've no, found
2: no, you've got your no, favorite absolutely and it's actually very very it's a very menopause friendly breakfast uh, flaxseed we know reduces the risk of breast cancer yeah flaxseed so was got, in there yeah and it should be milled so flaxseed mm. and chia seed ideally should be milled to release the omega-3s and the phytoestrogens uh porridge oats itself has phytoestrogens uh, so soy milk has it. So it's like a literally a menopause powered. Oh, lovely! <laughs> <Well done>. Perfect <laughs> breakfast, Claire. Well done, Claire. What
1: about you, Daisy? Well, I do like the similar sort of thing, but I'd prepare it overnight so that the yeah, next overnight. morning the oats are really soft. And I'll put flax seeds. I'll put whatever I've got the night before. Really, so I often like chopping up almonds, yeah, frozen fruits sometimes i'll put peanut butter if i'm not putting it oh, yes. oh yeah i forgot that
2: my... always a tablespoon of peanut butter in my
1: yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> i've never heard of anyone eating it without pre-soaking or cooking so uh, listeners if you if you are doing the same as claire <laughs> you let us know
2: <laughs> i've actually come across quite a few people really so i don't think claire is unusual oh, at all no, it's you... just a matter of getting used to you know, I, uh, know. And I, I bet you she would probably gag if she ate our porridge
0: yeah, I can't do cook porridge anymore. There's a whole set of there's a whole set of patients that are uh, from my GP surgery that I've told to eat exactly like this, so I'm sure they all are.
1: Wow, yeah. amazing! I'm going to try
0: tomorrow, Claire.
1: <laughs> well, listen, me too. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. We really enjoyed chatting with you. It's been such fun, and we've
0: learned so much.
2: Thank you. Really yeah,
0: it. and and to just just saying about the book.
2: Yeah, it's with- called Finding Me in Menopause. It's available on all bookstores for pre-order right now. Uh, finding me in menopause and it's flourishing in perimenopause and menopause using lifestyle and nutrition. Uh, But I also discuss all the common questions my patients ask me. It helps you to understand your body. I'm also talking directly to you and I share my own experience. So I think it's a book that most people will enjoy. I don't think there's any age limit really for it, although it is targeted to women after the age of 35, 40. But those who don't want to buy the book, a lot of my information is on my website, which is completely free, uh, www.neetubhajekal.com. And also, I'm very active on TikTok and on uh, Instagram. So everything is free. I answer questions. I just want to spread the information.
1: Ah, That's fantastic. Thank you, Anita. So the book is already available to pre-order. Yes. Excellent. We'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you once again. All
0: right. Thanks very much. You're welcome.
1: Thank you for listening to the podcast. We aim to bring you the most up-to-date evidence-based information about the benefits of a plant-based diet and we'll add all the links for further reading in the show notes. Please remember that everything discussed on here does not constitute individual medical advice. So please consult your healthcare provider if you have any medical concerns.
0: In the meantime, please subscribe to the In A Nutshell podcast on your usual streaming service and download our future podcast for free. And since food can be the best medicine, don't forget to share us with all your colleagues, friends and family. Until next time.